1: Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt podcast, bringing to you the best voices on the stories and issues that matter. Helping make it all possible is the generous partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Here's another piece I'll trust you enjoy. Byron York joins me now, author of Obsession. Hello, Byron. How are you? Good morning, Hugh. I'm fine. How are you? It's publication day, so you're going to be busy all day long, I assume. I, I hope so. That's the idea. just got off of uh, Fox News, Fox and Friends. I want everyone to get obsession. I'm going to dive right in a heavy comeback tomorrow, Byron. Uh, it's a year since Colonel Vindman kicked off impeachment. One of the things I did not tweet about is you really methodically go through the Colonel's role in this. How would, would you describe this as sort of groundbreaking, the focus you bring to Colonel Vindman? Yeah,
0: this is, you know, Republicans were very curious about how the uh, the impeachment began. Remember that it happens right as the Mueller investigation has collapsed. The, uh, the report comes out and it shows that Mueller could not establish collusion, could not establish there was conspiracy or coordination between Trump and Russia. Uh, and then Mueller appears before Congress on July 24th, 2019, and it's a disaster. So... A lot of Republicans kind of let their guard down. They begin to relax, thinking, wow, maybe this is finally over. Uh, and then they get word that Adam Schiff has something. Something is going on. And then they, they hear there's a, a whistleblower, uh, and they don't know what is going on. And there's this meeting in September uh, with the House Intelligence Committee. And um, Schiff, they, they, Schiff's manner says something to them. And one of the Republicans who was on the committee, Chris Stewart, said to me, he was so, I don't want to say giddy, he was so anticipating that we all noticed it. Um, so they, they wondered what was going on. And then when they finally found out that there was a whistleblower, remember, for a long time, Democrats wanted the whistleblower to testify uh, before impeachment hearings. And then all of a sudden they didn't. And they were doing everything they could to hide the identity of the whistleblower. Uh, And here's the reason it became important. Remember that a number of people uh, had listened to the uh, Trump-Zelensky phone call, the famous phone call with the president of Ukraine that's the basis for the whole impeachment. And none of them thought there was anything wrong with it. Only one person, Lieutenant Colonel Denman, thought there was something wrong with it. Then, bingo, there's a whistleblower complaint. So when they finally get a chance to question, Lieutenant Colonel Venman, uh, they say, well, okay, you were listening to the phone call. Who did you talk to outside the National Security Council? Who did you talk to? And he said, well, I talked to two people outside the National Security Council. Uh, one of them was George Kent, who handled this issue at the State Department. And the other one, and, and Adam Schiff says, no, you can't say who the other – and they would never say who the other person was. And it but Lee Zeldin
1: speak. and Jim Jordan trapped him. I mean, you recount this. They really did trap him repeatedly. There's no doubt about it. He was talking to the whistleblower.
0: No, there's absolutely no doubt about it. And, and,
1: and that makes him,
0: basically, Lieutenant Colonel Venman the source of the whole thing. And remember, there's this, there's this really telling exchange between Venman and John Ratcliffe, who was on the uh, Republican on the House Intelligence Committee at the time. He's now the director of national intelligence. And Venman is asking, uh, excuse me, Ratcliffe is asking Venman, well, uh, what was wrong with the call? I mean, did, did you think there was a law broken? Did you think there was some sort of uh, uh, improper conduct? And he said, well, I just thought something was wrong. And so but what? And he said, well, I thought it might negatively affect U.S. relations with Ukraine, or bipartisan support for Ukraine on Capitol Hill. And Ratcliffe said, that seems like a policy difference. It seems like a policy opinion. Uh, and, and all of them to say was, I thought it was wrong. And so what you have is the whole thing kind of coming down to that moment. And the person who is accusing the president says, well, it was really kind of a policy difference. And you don't impeach the president. On the basis of a policy.
1: Now, one of the things I think obsession does better than anything I've done. Well, you have sources like uh, Chris Stewart. I assume he gave you his diary. Uh, I think the Chris Stewart excerpts are amazing. Uh, have they ever been revealed before?
0: <laughs> they have. They have never. We, we were in long talks about um, uh, getting his diary, and he sent me the uh, he sent me the parts that had to do with the Intelligence Committee. I didn't. I didn't read anything about, you know, home life or softball games or anything like that. But uh, he did in the... Uh, yeah, it's terrific the stuff.
1: I mean, it's, it, you know, poor Adam Schiff is hapless, but Jerry Nadler is even more hapless. But I want to go back uh, to yeah. something about Lieutenant Colonel Vindman. And you're very respectful, as the Republicans were, of his service, of his purple heart. Nevertheless, he talks about the interagency. And you yes. contrast, Byron, this amorphous, Borg-like the interagency now I've been around National Security Council people forever. I know what it means the deputies committees the staff but the interagency doesn't trump the president
0: never did and the on a number of occasions and remember uh, Venman is interviewed uh, secretly remember the whole secret depositions he was interviewed secretly uh, and then he was interviewed in the public very brief public hearings that the Intelligence Committee. Uh, Had And his concern about uh, what the president was saying in the phone call with um, Ukrainian President Zelensky was that it was not consistent or did not comport with the, quote, interagency consensus. And this interagency is the State Department, National Security Council, the Treasury Department, uh, the Defense Department, and they make policy toward Ukraine. But, of course, all of those people work for the president. And the president sets U.S. foreign policy uh, toward Ukraine and everywhere else. Uh, so the, the striking thing about Denman as you, as you got to listen to him, was that he believed that the president was wrong because he was crossing the interagency consensus as if the president worked for the interagency as opposed to the interagency working for president
1: and byron do you think it will be fair and come back tomorrow we'll talk more about because there's so there are many revelations in here i got to tell you i didn't even know about jane and marty i didn't know about jane and marty until i read obsession i i'm i'm assured i'm not the only person but on Vinman, <laughs> do you think it will become known as the Vinman impeachment because by the time i'm done reading obsession i think to myself this all would not have happened. we would not have been missing wuhan in december and january except for the actions of Colonel Vindman in September.
0: That's absolutely correct. There's just no doubt about it. If you look at the whistleblower, um, who still remains uh, formally unidentified, uh, if you look at the whistleblower, he learns this from Colonel Vindman. Now, what's interesting is Republicans have figured this out during impeachment. They know uh, what's going on, Um, but they, they have a difficulty dealing with Venman, uh, one, Lee Zeldin said, look, Venman, he's a member of the, uh, the House, Venman was the person on the call who went to the whistleblower after the call to give the whistleblower the information he needed to file his complaint. Ultimately, we know Venman is the person talking to the whistleblower that added, that was from another uh, senior Republican aide. Uh, but at the same time, Venman was a decorated veteran. Uh, Republicans did not feel comfortable attacking him Uh, another aide said there were a lot of aspects of his service to the country that are very honorable and deserve respect part of the reason that the whistleblower ultimately was never officially confirmed was because Venman was a decorated military person Republicans were uneasy about going after Fenman because of his military service uh,
1: that comes through I think people will get to the end of that I want to start if we can with Rod Rosenstein, um, I was at the Aspen Security Forum three summers ago, and it was just weird. Uh, he was introduced, and the very liberal crowd rose like he was a savior arriving <laughs> from uh, you know a conquering ship. And he kind of way he liked it. He took it all in, and I thought to myself, this fella is a wonderful man, a career prosecutor, but he had no idea what he was doing when he wrote out the directions for Robert Mueller. He had no idea what he was doing when he appointed a special counsel. Did it ever become clear to you? Did you get it? Did Rod Rosenstein talk to you? Because he didn't talk to many people. No, he did not. And so what do you think is the story behind his rather inept opening act in the whole uh, Mueller special counsel bizarre thing?
0: Well, you know, the president president was absolutely stunned uh, by the appointment of uh, Mueller, and that that scene is actually in the Mueller report, where he says, uh, "Oh, this is terrible. This is the worst thing. I'm effed." Um, and I, I think it's been widely uh, misunderstood. For example, uh, but the point is, is he felt he felt uh, sandbagged by Rod Rosenstein, and I, I I think Rosenstein's behavior, remember, the discussing the possibility of wearing a wire uh, yes. into the Oval Office to to, to secretly record the president or the possibility of going to others in the cabinet. He was not you know, um, uh, the, the uh, attorney general, but he still thought about going to others in the cabinet to, to gauge support for a 25th Amendment uh, effort to remove the president. I mean, this is this was really not just kind of crazy, but also ham handed. But uh, after Jeff Sessions recused himself and remember, that's That's something that President Trump will never, ever, ever uh, forgive Sessions for. Uh, After Sessions recused himself, Rosenstein was the guy who made these decisions.
1: And when he did so, he did so against a backdrop that was not neutral. And I like the fact, I think I told you via text message this weekend, in Obsession, you review the fact that James Comey, before he was the director of the FBI, had Rod Rosenstein's job, deputy attorney general. And when he was in that job, James Comey was presented with a case that was even thinner than the case for impeachment on uh, russia, and that was the scooter Libby case, which wasn 't about scooter Libby, and he appointed a friend, Patrick Fitzgerald. Would you remind people what happened there because it it really still burns my chaps what Fitzgerald did and why Comey let him do it
0: yeah well there was a there was a big controversy, obviously there was a huge controversy over the Iraq War. And uh, opposition to the war was kind of getting its act together. And uh, George W. Bush, in his State of the Union, uh, had said that Iraq uh, had sought yellow-cake uranium, an element of nuclear weapons, in Africa. That was it. It was called the 16 words. It was one Senate. And um, what happened was uh, the CIA, CIA appointed a man named Joe Wilson. He was a former uh, ambassador to an African country to go over to uh, Africa and and look for evidence of this uh, yellow cake story and he comes back and he publishes a story in the New York Times saying he didn 't find any yellow cake in Africa, and the president was lying to his teeth in the in the uh, <clears throat> the state of the union and so this causes an uproar uh, and uh, the people in the White House say, "Who is this guy this Joe Wilson guy who isn 't and and they learned that his wife was a CIA operative, a woman named Valerie Plain. Uh, and Robert Novak, the late Robert Novak, the conservative columnist, uh, published uh, a column saying, well, you know, they were wondering why in the world uh, this, this Wilson guy went to Africa, and it was his wife who's a CIA operative. And um, a man named uh, David Korn, who's a reporter uh, for uh, Mother Jones uh, at the time, just starts yelling, oh, my God. Uh, Valerie Plame is a, is, a, is a covert operative. She's undercover at the CIA, and the president has, uh, or uh, uh, Robert Novak, has outed a secret CIA agent, and she's going to be in danger of her life, and this is classified information, and it could be treason. What happens is uh, they appoint uh, the Democrats, Charles Schumer and everybody, start yelling about this and a special counsel is appointed. And, and, uh, and uh, James Comey is the deputy attorney general at the time, and uh, he is the one who appoints his friend, Patrick Fitzgerald, to be the uh, special counsel. Now, there was a man named Richard Armitage who was a close associate of Colin Powell. He was in the, uh, the State Department, and he is the one who told Novak about Valerie Plame's identity. And privately... He told investigators that they knew from the very beginning who leaked her identity. And yet, and yet, the special counsel's investigation went on for three years, was very damaging to the Bush administration. And it came up with nothing. And in the end, they charged Scooter Libby, who was Vice President Cheney's chief of staff, with lying to investigators. In other words, a process crime. That's all that happened. But this caused enormous damage to the Bush administration. And, and that, the reason we tell, tell this yeah. long story is that's what Trump could see on the day he learns that a special counsel
1: has been appointed for him and Russia. And in fact, that's what happened, because after they discovered there was no collusion, which may have taken longer because they didn't have a Richard Armitage to show up and say there was it was me. I colluded with the Russians uh, the way Armitage said it was me. I outed plane. It took longer to establish there was no collusion, but still it went on. This brings us to special counsel Mueller. Now, Byron, I spent I can't tell you how many times I went on Meet the Press as the you know, designated conservative panelist and defended special counsel Mueller based upon mutual friends. I don't know him, but many of the people I worked with in the White House counsel's office during the Reagan years, many of the people that I know in the Washington legal establishment swear by the guy and Yet, when you come to the quote of John Dowd, who said that, quote, I lost all respect for Mueller on March 5, as a man, as a Marine, as a lawyer, that's pretty yep. devastating. What did Robert Mueller do on March 5 that sent John Dowd over the moon?
0: Well, uh, the, the special counsel and the, the White House, the Trump defense team, made a, an unprecedented deal early on in, in, in the investigation. In uh, June of 2017, I remember Mueller's just appointed on May 17th, so about a month later in June, they have a meeting. And basically the Trump team says this, um, the president wants this investigation over, and he wants it over fast. And you, Robert Mueller, you want cooperation. You want to be able to interview people in the White House. You want documents. Uh, Now, most of that is probably covered by executive privilege, and we could fight you. We could take you to court. We could drag this thing out forever. But the president wants it over fast. So here's the deal. We will offer you unprecedented cooperation. You talk to anybody you want to for as long as you want to. We give you all the documents. But in return, we want you to get this thing over fast. And Robert Mueller says, I don't let grass grow under me which everybody takes as a yes, and they shake hands, and that's the deal. And what happens is Trump keeps up, he, keeps his end of the bargain. He, uh, he gives them millions and millions of documents. Uh, I should say hundreds of thousands of documents. Uh, and he allows everybody to testify before Mueller.
1: Remember the White House counsel, Don Don uh, McGahn. I work for the White House counsel, Fred Fielding. I can't believe it still.
0: He testified for 30 hours to... Um, to Robert Mueller's prosecutor And he did that because the president Raised no objection So anyway What happens is Mueller begins uh, His investigation He's clearly looking for collusion In all the normal places George Papadopoulos um, Carter Page, that crazy incident At the Republican convention in 2016 He's not finding. So by the end of the year The Trump team knows That uh, collusion is a dry hole for the Mueller investigation, and they have this meeting in December, and they say, look, um, uh, we've kept our end of the deal. You haven't found collusion. It's time to wrap it up. And then that at that meeting, Mueller says, I think we need to talk to the president. And that changes everything uh, because it's clear that Mueller is, having failed to find collusion, is now going to search for obstruction. And he's going to need to know the president's state of mind. So they fight about this for a few months. And in this March 5th, 2018 meeting, three months later, you're talking about, um, basically they go over the same issues again. And Mueller says, well, maybe I'll just have to issue a subpoena for the president. And that is when uh, John Dowd <laughs> smashes his hand on the table and declares, you want, some, you want war? If you do that, you're going to get war and you're going to lose. Because the Trump team knew that Mueller had failed to establish the underlying allegation in all of this, that collusion took place. Uh, but he still was pushing ahead. And you explained, by the well an obsession tests.
1: very well, the underlying Collusion requires a predicate that be proven if the subpoena is going to be for a a layman. I'm reading it as a lawyer, and I think a layman will understand why they would never have gotten a subpoena if they read obsession. Even quickly, they'll see it, Byron. I don't know who taught you the law in in a couple of years, but you got it nailed. And Jay Seculo, who obviously talked to you at length, says on page 164, they kept going to try to get somebody to perjure themselves. Isn't that the succinct summary? That is exactly what – the question was
0: they they haven't found collusion, and because of that, they don't really have any reason to go forward, Uh, and yet they are. Why are they doing it? They seem to want to set up a perjury trap for the president, and part of the reason they know that is the way they charged Michael Flynn. And remember, after the interview of Michael Flynn in the White House, January 24, 2017, the FBI wasn't going to charge him. It wasn't until Mueller came into office in May that they took the Flynn case off the shelf and said, ah, we can charge this guy with something lying to investigators and put pressure on him, and maybe he'll tell us about all this pollution that we seem to believe is out there. George Papadopoulos also charged with with lying to investigators. A couple of minor players charged with the same thing. And so the Trump team was looking at this and saying Mueller has no crime uh, he can't establish that the crime even occurred, much less who did it. Uh, and yet he's still pushing for this. Uh, and the only reason can be he's hoping to catch the president and a lie. And then that will be
1: the story. My guest is Byron York. I just tweeted out that in his new book, he proves conclusively, I think, beyond a shadow of doubt, there ought never to have been a special counsel. And that special counsel, Mueller, broke his word. Uh, Let's talk about what Sarah Huckabee Sanders also describes briefly in her book, her memoir. Speaking for myself, Byron, she talks about being interrogated by the Mueller team. She met the special counsel briefly and in a flash said Mueller was a uh, a wraith like figure, small and tentative, and that it occurred to her in the flash He was not in charge of the investigation. You detail, quite conclusively, I believe, he was a figurehead. Explain why you conclude that.
0: Well, um, you know, when Robert Mueller was appointed, he was widely uh, praised. And I spoke with people who had dealt with Mueller uh, in the early 2000s. You know, he took over the FBI right after September 11th. And they said he was super sharp. Uh, you know, bang, bang, bang. You're in a meeting with him. It was like being in law school with a professor that you didn't want to be called on for a question because if you if you didn't know the answer, it was bad news. So he was he was super sharp. And clearly, the Mueller that we saw on uh, July 24th, 2019, who went up to Capitol Hill and testified about his uh, report was a completely different man. He had he was slow. Uh, he had a very – he had difficult time uh, answering some of the most basic questions, formulating uh, complex sentences. It, it, was, it was just – he was just a different man, and, and uh, a lot of people thought that he had uh, experienced some sort of cognitive decline. So what happened was uh, – when that happened, a lot of people in the Trump defense went back and they looked over what had happened during the uh, during the investigation. And uh, that Mueller's uh, staff would would very, very rarely let him talk to the Trump team. They couldn't get him on the phone. They didn't see him in person. Rudy Giuliani, who joined the Trump team in uh, April of 2018, had all of one meeting with Mueller. And in that meeting, uh, the whole Trump team is stunned. Uh, They go over some issues in the case. And one of the issues they discuss is the Justice Department policy that a sitting president cannot be indicted. And everybody who's listening knows that was a huge issue in this case. Uh, and Mueller didn't know the policy. He didn't recall the policy. Now, obviously, the Robert Mueller of old knew precisely what this was, but he had a difficulty recalling what the policy was. And an aide stepped in uh, to say that that the um, the office would take it under advisement, and they'd get back to the Trump team. But everybody in the Trump team said, "Wow, what's what's going on?" And the the reason this is important the the fact that Mueller was suffering cognitive decline during the investigation the reason is important. Remember back to the controversy when he's first appointed, he hires a bunch of uh, Democratic lawyers, some of whom have been big uh, Democratic donors, and the idea is that boy, these these, uh, these prosecutors all seem to, uh, you know, lean on the Democratic side, uh, and the idea was that well, Robert Mueller is a
1: straight shooter; he will ride herd. I said that them. so many times. I said that so many times on the he air. said, on the said it so many uh, times. And,
0: and, the, and the thing is, is that um, could he really do that when he was in the situation that he was in? And the Trump people began to believe the answer was no. Now,
1: Byron, I, I hope you will come back after. The book is already in the, in the low hundreds on Amazon. It should be a number one by the end of today or tomorrow. Obsession. People need to get three copies and give them to their Trump-hating friends. But I we've got to get you back because I, we've been talking about the bad side of this. I want to praise Kevin McCarthy, Leader McConnell laughing at Speaker Pelosi. I want to praise Chris Stewart and Jordan and Zeldin. <laughs> uh, I want to play Sekolo and Cipollone. I mean, they were... They laid back. They ambushed the con- Congress. We've, we've been talking about the special counsel this morning, but I want to get to Congress after you've had a couple of days. Are you just doing book tour endlessly? we got about a minute to the break, Pirate.
0: I am, but I will make time for Hugh Hewitt anytime he wants to talk to me. How about that? Because oh, good. Uh, have uh, Dwayne will set that up. For
1: this but, book. But, well, Obsession is absolutely the book we needed in this election cycle. I don't know if you planned it this way, but... It just blows away so many things. We haven't even talked about Jane and Marty yet. Nobody knows who Jane and Marty is. Have you discovered that yet, by the way? Nobody knows about Jane and Marty? Yeah, and I'm very happy. uh, You're referring to Jane and Marty
0: Raskin, who are two very, very high-level defense lawyers who worked on the husband and wife, who worked on the Trump defense. And they worked way behind the scenes. But if you read the story, you'll see a number of quotes from uh, Jane Raskin, who was kind enough to to talk to me. Oh, my goodness. What went
1: on. You know, if I ever get in trouble, God forbid, I'm hiring Stephen Larson, who's the retired district court. But if he's not available, I'm hiring Jane and Marty. <laughs> I, I, when, you, when we talk next, we'll talk about Jane and Marty. People don't know who Jane and Marty are. Well, we, you got to read Byron York's Obsession. Go to Amazon right now. Order copies for all your never Trumper friends. Order copies for all the people who are on the fence. And get one for yourself so you're smart about this. Byron York, always a pleasure. Follow Byron on Twitter, at Byron York. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review. Our program is coming today in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. It's America's most unique graduate leadership program offered on Pepperdine's breathtaking campus in Malibu, California. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. If you're enjoying the podcast, please tell a friend to go to Town Hall Review and sign up as well today. This is Hugh Hewitt for townhall.com. The normalization of economic relations between Kosovo and Serbia marked yet another significant foreign policy success for the Trump administration. In its aftermath, when President Trump presided over a very important set of handshakes commemorating the deal, the elite media all but ignored the story. To have Kosovo and Serbia put aside generations of enmity and normalize economic relations is a big deal of and in itself. But both countries also agreed to take steps to support the momentum for peace in the Middle East generated by the peace treaty between the United Arab Emirates and Israel. More dominoes were falling toward peace. Another may follow soon. So when Ambassador Rick Grinnell, the special envoy for Serbia and Kosovo peace negotiation, teed off on a seemingly disinterested media, his frustration was understandable. The electorate is weary of the non-stop anti-Trump alarmism. The American voter needs to pay attention to Trump's real successes not the media's distraction. I'm Hugh Hewitt.